This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of April 13th, 2015, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 223 of Defender Radio. We're springing forward this week with some great interviews with two experts on wildlife in the spring. But before we get started, we need to address a serious situation taking place in Vancouver. Last week, bunker fuel began leaking from a ship in Vancouver's English Bay. Within hours, the toxic fuel reached the shorelines of popular beaches, prompting warnings to residents to stay away and activating wildlife oil spill responders. The fur bearers are encouraging anyone who sees wildlife affected by an oil spill to immediately contact one of the expert organizations listed on our blog and to not approach the wild animals themselves. You can also visit these organizations to learn how you can get trained and volunteer to respond to oil spill scenarios. We'd like to offer our deepest thanks to those compassionate individuals who are working endlessly to protect wildlife from such horrible situations. On this week's episode, however, we're focusing on two spring-related topics that come up every year, wildlife feeding and living with bears. Dr. Sarah Dubois, the Chief Scientific Officer for the BCSPCA, knows from personal experience that wildlife follow food and it's in our power to prevent the conflict that arises as a result. And Sylvia Dolson of the Get Bear Smart Society has some great tips on how to live peacefully with bears, and what to do if you come across them during a hike or while camping. Let's get started. In almost every wildlife conflict situation we've studied, food is a central issue. Whether it's intentionally feeding ungulates like deer or unintentionally feeding predatory animals like coyotes, the easiest and safest way to live with wildlife is to ensure we're not feeding them. And Dr. Sarah Dubois, the Chief Scientific Officer for the BCSPCA, has a plan. She wants to make feeding wildlife the new littering. Uh, so lately we've been seeing a lot of mixed messaging coming through the media about uh, feeding wildlife. Uh, in Ontario, it's been an extremely long and cold winter. In Nova Scotia, it's still the middle of winter somehow. Um, and out west, it's been mild because I hate you all. Um, <laughs> now, it, what is the right solution? I mean, like, why do we normally say don't feed wildlife? What's the baseline reason for that? The reason for that, of course, is we don't want to habituate these animals or food condition them, especially animals that can pose public safety risks, because unfortunately those animals are often then trapped and killed because of their behaviors. So often people will put out bird feeders for the winter because that's the hardest period of time for some of the birds that are residents to find food, especially if there's a lot of snow on the ground and covering plants. And if it's an unusual winter and food's not coming up, quickly in the spring, then that can be problematic. So I think it's really good to consult with your local naturalist groups, but also to understand the bylaws and wildlife laws in your area. We really don't want to cause additional problems and attract rats and other things like that. So it's unfortunate some animals will not make it through the winter. That's just normal in nature, but we don't want animals to suffer either. And so there are some interventions that can take place. 
And speaking of interventions, that's, uh, I, I think, maybe like a two-parter. Um, first, at what point should we be intervening? I remember a discussion with someone a few years ago about a particularly uh, cold winter in eastern Ontario, and the bears were coming out not finding anything to eat, and it was leading the conflict, and they were saying, well, we should go feed the bears. Meanwhile, across the country, we're telling people, never, ever, ever feed bears. And I would have to agree with that, yeah. Actually, I had a bear in my backyard last week, and unfortunately, he got into our local garbage, even though it's as mild and there's some food out there. Naturally, he was starting to find compost as a, uh, in the strata and housing complexes uh, in the neighborhood. And uh, the bear trap was put out, you know, so I don't know if he actually got caught. But we know that that's the reality for bears that are going to be in people's backyards. So we don't encourage feeding them again. There have to be, you know, ways for these animals to adapt. And if they aren't going to make it, that's just a factor for, for natural selection. But sometimes, you know, small animals um, will be taken in by a rehab center if they're in a starvation phase and, and euthanized. Um, and at what point would we consider feeding wildlife? I mean, is there a circumstance, like you said, where we need to start taking action is it you know when we look at an entire ecosystem or species is it a one-on-one -on -one situation how is that determined i think it's a complicated question that varies by species unfortunately and again it varies by location so you have to really discuss that type of approach at a, a like you said an ecosystem level on a community level with input from local biologists and naturalists if you are just thinking about do i put out my bird feeder um, you know, at this time of the year on the East Coast, yes, those birds still need it. But right now on the West Coast, for example, the bears are getting into the bird feeders. So it's time to put them away. All right. And I think you touched on something that's probably the hardest part of this conversation for us, for those listening. And I know certainly even, you know, sitting around the pub and talking about it with friends um, is the ethics of intervention. So we can scientifically talk about uh, natural selection in the adaptation of a species. But at what point do we say we need to intervene to protect these individual animals in recognizing that they are individuals with emotions? I mean, how do we balance that line between ethics and bold, dispassionate science? And I think that's a challenging one. I think where myself and, and other scientists we've come out on this is really we, what level have we intervened? So has there been a direct human intervention that has caused the animal to suffer? So, you know, did we hit the animal with our car? Did we cause its food source to disappear, um, you know, directly? Of course, there's lots of indirect effects like climate change and all those things that are happening in the background. But I think we have to intervene when there are direct impacts, um, definitely. And then, you know, there is some philosophical discussion, of course, about the level of indirect effects like climate change and deforestation and things like that, you know, that are much broader level for these animals. Yeah, I would certainly think you get into a much more in-depth discussion on the ethics of it when you start looking at perhaps an endangered species as well. Um, the hot topic these days has been those mountain caribou herds. Um, but again, more locally, a lot of municipalities do struggle with wildlife feeding issues, and this ranges from coyotes who are visiting backyards uh, to bears like you had just uh, dealt with yourself, um, even down to geese being considered a nuisance. In my hometown, that's a, a big problem because it's along the waterfronts. Um, now, 
how can municipalities look at developing a bylaw that will allow them to prevent this feeding that leads to conflict, but not necessarily offend a lot of the nature lovers. Um, and as we both know, bird feeders are incredibly popular. So is there sort of a, a way for them to manage that from your experience? Well, some municipalities have put in some great bylaws, and I think we've learned from others that haven't worked out so well. And it really comes down to enforcement abilities, as you know. So I think that putting in a bylaw that says you cannot feed wildlife, perhaps with the exception of bird feeders between time, very specific months of the year that the birds actually need it. Um, so we're not needing to feed the birds in a plentiful summer months when they have lots of natural foods out there. So that I think is a, a good balanced position to come out as a municipality because the reality is that even though you may be trying to only attract birds in those months, you may be attracting the bears and the rats and the squirrels and other species. So I think really getting into this concept that, you know, feeding wildlife just needs to become socially unacceptable is another phenomenon because enforcement can only go so far. There's not going to be, you know, people being ticketed at every block of every neighborhood in the community. We just know that enforcement powers aren't there. So thinking of wildlife feeding in those bad situations as the new littering is what I, I call it. So we want to really socially make that unacceptable to feed the ducks at the pond because they don't need the bread and to be putting out food in your backyard for squirrels or coyotes or other animals. Now, one of the things I, I really want to end on, and this is something you just noted, is feeding ducks, feeding geese. This is something I did as a child. I think many Canadian children have done this, is you go to the pond with the stale bread and you throw it for the ducks and they come up and it's lots of fun. But I found out that it's actually very, very dangerous to the animals when they're given inappropriate food items. Uh, could you explain a bit about why we need to educate people on that portion of, of this issue? Absolutely. So the challenge, of course, in feeding these animals foods that we eat uh, means that this is actually food that they would not normally have in their diet or be able to find in the wild. And it's not nutritionally complete. So it's like feeding them candy or really insufficient uh, nutrition. And they bulk themselves up on it and they don't actually get the real food that they need. We've had ducks and other bird species come in with a condition called angel wing because of a lack of proper metabolism of foods that help with bone growth. So, so it can be very challenging. It can actually be critically, uh, you know, dangerous to these animals. They have to be euthanized if they're not actually developing properly. And they can develop stomach conditions as well by getting quite bloated. We've seen a number of animals come in to rehabilitation centers that have had to unfortunately be euthanized because they've just gorged themselves on this type of food. So I think that although we get a lot of pleasure out of it, and it seems like the animals get an immediate satisfaction of it, but it's it's incredibly, incredibly dangerous. To learn more about the BCSPCA, visit bcspca.ca. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in, your insulation is being ruined, and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring? Protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. 
please visit our website at gateswildlifecontrol.com or dial 416-750-9453. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America's song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Beaver dams help clean water, promote songbird diversity, encourage fish populations, and create better soil and a cleaner environment. Beavers are good for Canada, but will we be good to them? Find out more at furbearerdefenders.com and give a damn about beavers. This is Defender Radio. Being bear smart isn't always something on our minds, but it certainly is easy to do once you understand the basics. Sylvia Dolson of the Get Bear Smart Society in Whistler, BC, joined Defender Radio to talk spring bears, what they're up to, how they respond to us, and what we can do to prevent conflict. Talk a bit about uh, the Get Bear Smart Society for me. What's what's the the all-encompassing vision? of the uh, the organization. Get Bear Smart's vision is for people and bears to coexist in harmony. So we help communities get bear smart, we help individuals get bear smart at home, and we help people working in bear country work in a work-safe manner. And you've had a lot of success working with people. Uh, you were at our Living with Wildlife conference a couple of years ago in Vancouver. I know you've worked with many municipalities uh, out in BC. Um, so why don't we, I guess, sort of focus to start with what bears are doing now? Um, because, you know, I'm calling from Ontario, so it's going to be a little different, but I imagine there's a lot of similarities. Uh, so what behavior or what part of the life cycle are bears experiencing uh, here in the middle of April? Mm-hmm. So your bears in Ontario are probably still safely tucked in their dens under the snow pack, but our bears here in uh, British Columbia, in the, in the Lower Mainland anyway, and, and in my area in Whistler, British Columbia, they're uh, emerging with the, with the dominant males coming out first. And uh, mothers with cubs are probably still in their dens. The little cubs are born in January, mid-January to early February. And so they're only three months old right now. They usually don't bring them out until they're between seven and a half and ten pounds, so around early May in my area, uh, so that they can at least keep up with mom and climb trees and get away from from any predators. So right now there aren't a lot of natural food sources. So bears are feeding on grasses, on golf courses, and in parks, um, any other greenery. I've seen some logs that have been torn apart you know, they're looking for ants and grubs or anything else that's in there. And, um, yeah, skunk cabbage. Skunk cabbage is another thing that they like. You can always see if bear has been feeding on skunk cabbage because the leaves will have been torn off and placed to the side. And what they really want 
is the very top part of the root. So we're the white, the white color. And that is because it is high in protein. And that's really tough to get protein at this time of year. So really they're just into the emerging greens. And uh, it's also a time of year where bears are still wary. You know, they go in the den and they spend all winter there and they come out and they're just a little bit shyer than they were when they went in. And so... Well, and feeding, um, as we all know, is is really one of the primary motivators in almost all wildlife conflict, be it raccoons or coyotes or bears. Um, so what what do bears look for? I mean, to them, what is ideal in terms of human waste or garbage or or whatever it is they're looking for? Yeah, so the, so they're looking for the highest calorie count and bird seed, seeds, you know, seeds and nuts um, or grease, like barbecue grease, for example, or the grease from a restaurant. Um, anything that has a high concentration of, of calories or any kind of and of garbage, you know, they're picking through garbage. They're not going to be too picky, but they're going to go for the fat the fatty things or the meat or something like that. Even though bears are, you know, they are actually carnivores. They truly are omnivores, though, even though they're classified carnivora. Um, so, but they will opportunistically eat meat. And and most, for the most part, that is um, ants and grubs and things like that or winter-killed animals. So if they're lucky, they might find a winter-killed deer or something like that right now. Um, yeah, and that's something I think surprises a lot of people, uh, that classification issue, because we see the same thing with dogs, is they're classified, I believe, or wolves, coyotes, etc., classified as carnivores, but the majority of their diet is actually going to be vegetation and other things they forage for, uh, and meat is kind of like an added bonus to them. I, I guess that's something that happens a lot with bears, though, is people, you know, they read a headline about bears... And then presume to know everything there is about bears or, yeah. uh, you know, they, they saw uh, an episode of, of uh, National Geographic that went out the window and have decided that all bears are evil. Uh, how, how do we get across to, to folks that bears, you know, they're, they're so much like us in terms of they just want to raise their families, mm -hmm. be safe, have a full mm -hmm. belly and a mm -hmm. place to put their head at night. Mm -hmm. Well, you just nailed it, didn't you? You know, that's it. That, that's, that's all they really want. They don't really want to interact with us. And that is quite evident when you have a good natural food year and you have plentiful berry production, for example, in my area, they just do not come into town. And so we have very low conflict in those years. And when there is a food shortage, they do foray into town and, and look for human food sources. But it's not what they want to do. They just want to live their life, raise their family, if you know, a sow raising her family, um, or, or just hang out. If, if they're lucky and they have um, lots of natural foods, then they even have time to play. And bears will form um, relationships with other bears in, in, their, in their ranges and even mentorship. So you might have a young bear uh, following around an older bear, and the older bear won't shoo him off. He'll just let him follow around and figure things out for himself. Um, it's really kind of interesting that the alliances that bears do form. We actually, funny story, we had a little group of five 
yearlings that all kind of grew up in the same home range with their moms. And when the mothers broke up the family unit, those five hung out together, and we we called them the we called them the um, Fitz Creek Gang <laughs> uh, because they were living in Fitzsimmons Creek in Whistler. And so, you know, they would be all tough when they were marauding together, you know, <laughs> kind of huff and puff and slap the ground with their paws if somebody got too close to them. When they were alone, they just ran like heck and went up a tree. But together, they... <laughs> that sounds like typical boys. Typical. Typical. And it was actually yeah. a female in the group. Oh. Yeah. And so they, I mean, they, they just used to go around as a group and they played. They played so much. It was so much fun to watch them. And the, the remnants of snow on the ski hill, and they would find a little patch of snow, and they would slide down it, and then they would all run back up the hill and slide down it again, and run up and slide down. <laughs> I have um, photographs of it. It's, it's, it was just so much fun. Well, and I guess that kind of leads into the the ultimate question in in this case is those who are fortunate to have seen bears in that true innocent state. Um, may not be in the majority. A lot of folks are seeing them on property and backyards at campsites. So what are some of the things that we can be doing as individuals, uh, as homeowners, hikers, what have you, on preventing this kind of conflict? And and again, when I, it should be noted, when I say conflict, that does not uh, necessarily mean any kind of a violent or menacing interaction. It simply means contact. Uh, so what can we be doing to try and mitigate these instances? Well, taking care of our attractants. But if you don't mind, let's just go back one step. Um, when you first start asking this question, my first thought, and what can we do? Um, and when I was watching these bears playing and so on, I think that anyone who has a fear of wildlife or bears in particular should go on a bear viewing tour and have that experience where they are watching wildlife safely in a group and they're being educated at the same time. Um, and that's just, when I've taken people on bear viewing tours, I can watch their whole demeanor and body posture relax and they just go, oh, oh my God, this is just so much fun. And the, and the fear just dissipates. And so that's one great way to get over your fear of bears. Um, but in terms of, of mitigating any conflict at home or at work or even if you're hiking in the woods, you know, it's all about the food, as you said earlier. But the only reason bears will interact with people is to get out our food, whether it's in our backpack or in the bird feeder in the yard or, say, there's a camp cook kitchen or something like that where bears will try to access a remote camp area. And so it's all about keeping the food away. So that's either in a bear-proof manner, you know, bear-proof waste containers, um, bear-resistant food storage con um, containers for hiking and so on, or electric fencing. You know, electric fence, if you have backyard chickens now, they're all the rage. Um, you want to make sure that there is a little electric fence. And it's not hard and it's not expensive. And in fact, you can get electric electrified netting uh, for chicken coops and things like that. So there's some really, you know, really cheap and easy ways to um, protect anything that you don't want to remove from your property with a portable electric fence or portable netting or something like that. 
Uh, and if people want to learn more about safely hiking, camping, or living around bears, uh, does the Bear Smart uh, Society have a uh, website or online resource? Absolutely. Yeah, bearsmart.com. It's the best online resource for anything bear. It's the largest, most informative website. And we just um, redid it, so it's it's very user-friendly. tons of you know, new blogs on there all the time and good information. We also have a Facebook page at BearSmart and Twitter at BearSmart. To learn more about the Get Bear Smart Society, visit www.bearsmart.com. That's the show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support of our program. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.